My guest this week is the highly respected South African TV executive, Glenn Marks. Glenn has had a storied career in pay TV in South Africa, working across the sports and entertainment sides of South African pay TV giant DSTV. For anyone currently involved in TV in Africa or planning a future expansion into the continent, Glenn's insights are a must-listen. Enjoy. Hi, Glenn. Welcome to the pod. Hi, Denny. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, for coming on. I was really interested in uh, South Africa and Africa, probably when you were growing up, because on a recent pod that uh, I did with Gavin Hood, he mentioned that there was really no TV in South Africa until, you know, sort of relatively recent times. So was that an exp- was that the same for you? Did you have that experience? And then if so... It must have been quite a big leap to end up working in television. Yes, I mean, I, that, that, I listened to that pod you did with, uh, podcast you did with Gavin. It was very interesting. TV came very late in this country because the, the then government, you know, from a moral point of view, felt it was an evil and didn't want to expose us to what was happening, you know, in the rest of the world. And I think it was 1976 when we had our first uh, television. And it was very much, uh, a, very much a government-controlled medium at that time. So there wasn't much, uh, you know, opportunity in television. It was all radio, and and and, pr- and print was the big thing. And I actually started life as on the print side of the business. I, I studied journalism initially. Actually, I my only ambition in life was to be a sports reporter, and uh, that's how I started. And that sort of moved its way into eventually into broadcast and television years. And so, what was your first job working in um, in sports journalism? I never became a print sports journalist. Interestingly enough. But my first job in television was for Supersport, which was the sports, the big sports channel, you know, and sports company uh, here in South Africa and still is, you know, a big sports broadcaster. And that's where I started on the television side and um, absolutely loved that. And it was a very interesting time because initially, actually, I, I came in more on the business development side. And I worked a lot around, um, at that stage, we were looking to buy sports teams. And we acquired a, a football team, and we still have a football team, which does very well here in the local league. We owned stakes in about four rugby teams, some cricket sides. I was brought in for that, and it was a fascinating time. So I, I worked in, all, in that side of the business and was very involved in doing those deals. And I sat in all those sports teams and their boards and things. Very difficult business, but fun. And then how did you end up moving a bit more onto the Mnet and the general entertainment side of things? Well, I was at Supersport and, you know, that was my, I was also involved on the rights side of the business. So in doing rights. And what happened was Mnet and Supersport are joined at the hip. Supersport was the sports side of the content business. Mnet was the general entertainment side. And um, I was then at that stage, the COO at Supersport. And Mnet were looking for a CEO, and it was one of those things where they went about a year, and there was no CEO. They couldn't find anybody, and some bright sparks said, well, "Why don't we try Glenn?" <laughs> and I was actually very unhappy about this because I was loving my time on the sports side, but I realised, you know, after some thought, that it probably made sense from an overall career point of view. And although I knew nothing about general entertainment, I moved over to Mnet, and I was made CEO of Mnet. And um, I must say, loved my time there. I spent eight years running Mnet, uh, which was on the general entertainment side. 
And although I missed the sport, um, I really learned a hell of a lot, I think, on the on the internet side, on the general entertainment side of the business, which I really enjoyed. And then at some point, the opportunity came to uh, experience the West Coast of the United States. And that must have been a big leap. Yeah, so it was interesting because, you know, when I started at Supersport and Mnet, in fact, we were a separate, we were a publicly listed company at that time. And we weren't, you know, fully owned by Nuspets. You might be familiar with Nuspets. But what happened then was Nuspets bought us, bought us out in total. And so we became effectively a division of multi-choice. And, and uh, so I, it was, the job was kind of less interesting for me. And Nuspets which, you know, for an African company is often way ahead of, its time, ahead of its time, had acquired this business or started this business on the West Coast, which was, you know, in those days, a uh, video over the internet, way, way over its time, ahead of its time. And uh, because I knew something about video, they thought I might, you know, that the business was battling. Uh, maybe I could assist in getting this thing going, and get it, you know, getting it off the ground. And so I went out there and spent some time out there. But it was a difficult time because the business, as I said, we were actually too far ahead of our time. It wasn't ready and it became quite clear early on that to get scale in North America in that business, you needed really deep pockets. In fact, most of our stuff was in sport. We had some quite interesting sports deals. But to get real scale was going to take very deep pockets and uh, we then basically closed it down. But it was an interesting experience. And then back to South Africa. So I came back to South Africa much earlier than, you know, intended because the you know the idea had been or the hope had been that we could make something of that business but unfortunately that never happened fortunately i suppose for me the company didn't want me to leave but they never really had a job for me and so we had a company in holland called myriad which used to do all the acquisitions because in those days you know we had television pay television businesses in greece in thailand in europe and so it was all done out of holland but we sold off those other businesses, so we only had Africa, and it made no sense to run acquisitions out of Holland. And for some strange reason, none of the Dutch or American English staff at the business in Holland wanted to relocate to Johannesburg. <laughs> I couldn't understand that, and so there was a bit of a panic because they moved the business to South Africa, and they had nobody. So they came to me and said, listen, you, you're kind of back from America. We're not sure what to do with you. You're the only one who really seems to understand how this all works. Won't you look after this for, for a short time? And that took 10 years. In fact, took me to my retirement because, you know, what I quite enjoyed doing it. It kept me in touch. I got to travel a lot internationally. Uh, but from a personal point of view, it was a fantastic time. I lived in Cape Town, which, if you know, South Africa is you know, a fantastic place to live. I was able to do the job from Cape Town and just commute occasionally to Johannesburg. There was a lot of travel. I didn't have any of the sort of operational responsibility that one that goes with a, a big, you know, operational job. And so I loved it. I spent, you know, every year, I, you know, we'd say, you know, okay, do another year, Glenn, do another year, Glenn. And it took me all the way to my retirement. And um, so uh, I, it was a, a fascinating time. So I've had a, a, quite an interesting kind of career across the same company, but in different spheres. And how has it changed? How's the company and your part of the industry changed over the years? Not only as a company itself, but over the broad period of time, South Africa in particular has changed dramatically. And so you would have seen a lot of changes both internally and, and externally. Absolutely. I mean, when I started, we were a single channel analog pay television business. There was one analog channel, which you know had a bit of sport and general entertainment, some movies and one or two series. And that then grew into a multi-channel digital business. In fact, we were one of the first digital satellite launches in, you know, in the world uh, here in Africa. Uh, and that side of the business grew quite quickly. 
We were one of the first South African companies to expand into Africa. And we expanded and have done so you know, fairly successfully, despite some of the challenges. It's not easy doing business in the rest of Africa. And so we took the business into you know, all the corners of Africa. Uh, and so we grew that business very well to the point where there's now over 20 million subscribers. But obviously, like everywhere else in the world, the business is changing. The business model is changing. And, and we're having to adapt ourselves here and deal with those changes. I always got the impression when I started out that Mnet and DSTV in general was sort of targeted at a fairly affluent audience and that that was one of the ambitions of the business was to become more broad and appeal to a wider audience. Is that something that you've achieved or does it still tend to be a, a more affluent audience that an, an affluent subscriber base? No, I think the business has, has, has been very successful at, bro- at broadening the base. If you've got 20 million subscribers, there's no ways that you only are attracting an affluent audience in Africa. Um, and so what's happened is the premium, you know, the top tier, the affluent tier, has in fact pretty much stagnated or plateaued. And you've seen all the growth come at the bottom and uh, the lower levels and the lower income bands. And that's where the real growth opportunity lies for the business still. Uh, there's still a massive market, addressable market out there as the, the continent develops. And that's very much part of the business strategy now going forward is to is to actually tap even more into that market. And that's really interesting because you are a pan-continental uh, broadcaster. So what, what are some of the interesting challenges that you have in building a business with such a diverse set of, of countries that, that you have to go in? What works and, and how things operate in South Africa, I'm sure, is completely different to how it might work in Malawi or Rwanda or Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm going to run out of African countries that I can name <laughs> soon, but uh, there are a the point. More. I think that's the biggest learning we, we had. You know, when, you, when we started out, it was a pan-satellite business. And um, what we quickly realized was that to achieve growth and to achieve you know, any sort of level of penetration, particularly in the lower income segments, we had to localize. There seems to be this view that Africa is homogenous, but it's anything but. And you've got massively differing tastes and cultures across, you know, between East, West and, and, and South. And, and so we have different bouquets that try and appeal to each you know, regional segments. We localize within countries. And that's been a major part of what we've done and I think has driven our growth is trying to add local channels using local product either regionally or even in countries where the countries uh, we think have the potential to grow. I mean, we've learned that the hard way and we've really have paid our school fees. In some ways, it's a form of moat, I suppose, for you know, a Netflix, for example. Netflix has done pretty well in South Africa at the top end, but it's not done very well outside of that. And because it's very difficult to do so and achieve any level of penetration unless you localize. And there are all kinds of other issues in Africa, which you might remember, you know, the currency, because you have a situation where in most countries now you can't charge in dollars. You have to charge in a local currency. And often the local currency, you know, it's nothing to have a local currency devalue by 50% overnight, you know, because of some or other government policy or whatever may happen, economic, you know, crisis, or your money gets locked up in the country. You know, there's very little credit card penetration across Africa or most of Africa. It's only at the top end. So you have to have all kinds of alternative payment mechanisms and forms. So it's not easy. It's, uh, you know, something that you take for granted where you're sitting now is electricity. You know, electricity doesn't, it's not, it's, 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 it's a privilege for most of Africa. It doesn't just happen. And it's very difficult to run a business when, you know, there's constantly outages. 
you know, all these things you kind of have to bear in mind. And I suppose you kind of just learn to roll with the punches and, 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 and do it. And, and so if there aren't credit card or robust banking mechanisms, how do people subscribe? How do people pay? In, in, Often they in just turn up with a bag of cash. Uh, seriously, that's what they do. They'll turn up, you know, uh, or they'll send, <laughs> it depends where you are, but, you know, in Nigeria, you'll see that the driver arrive with a bag of cash to pay for six months of DSTV. Uh, but where we've got very innovative, I mean, that cash is obviously important, but a lot of vouchers, shopping tokens, uh, using cell phone companies and telcos, which have massive, you know, the, the telcos, especially the, the mobile phone companies have achieved massive penetration across Africa. So we do a lot of stuff with them where you can, you know, you can twin, you know, do your billing across that, that, that way. But it's not as simple as just, I swipe my card and I'm in, you know, or my, it's, you've got to come up with different alternative payment, payment forms. And so that's a barrier to entry. And that, in a sense, has helped to maintain the primacy of, of the platform across the, the continent, right? It feels like the work that you've done over the years will lead to a lot of catching up to be done. Yes, I think so, to some extent. I mean, you know, it's and, and the infrastructure, because you don't have a proper broadband, nothing like what you'd have a developed broadband infrastructure, in, you know, in Europe or North America. So, you know, broadband or internet connectivity here is very expensive. It's not very fast. And so it's difficult to, to simply launch an OTT service and, 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 and get some, some traction. It takes time. And that's why satellite is for uh, a very strong medium, you know, across Africa. But over time, that'll change. There's no doubt about it. And uh, over time, things will evolve and become more sophisticated. And it's been incredible, just the level of evolution or, or growth just over the last you know, few years. It really is uh, shaping up for, for uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. You were talking about the focus on rights and acquisitions. And that obviously meant dealing with lots of international content. Uh, distributors and, and producers and content owners. And one of the ways that Mnet in particular built its relationship with those suppliers was the Mnet Safari, which is probably the best trip in, in international television. W were, you, were you always a fan? Did, how many did you go on? Yeah, I did quite a few safaris um, with, with uh, you know, with right suppliers. And then I used to do a conference every year where to attract speakers, we used to uh, entice them with an offer of a safari. They would come out and, and do a presentation for us. Um, we eventually had to stop it for, you know, for, for, for two reasons. The one was cost. It was quite costly. But the second one was, you know, we became a bit concerned when we realized that some of those suppliers were developing relationships and were talking amongst themselves. And, <laughs> and we thought this might not be the best way of doing it. And so what we tended to then do is take suppliers individually. So, you know, to celebrate a deal or to cement a deal that we did that once or twice, it was a very good place. You know, if, you, if you're stuck on a Land Rover for four hours, <laughs> it's quite a good place to talk. <laughs> yes. I mean, I can also imagine that uh, the threat of being left behind to face the lions on your own may have been a good motivation. I often use that threat. <laughs> yes. Although some of the people in our business would probably scare the lions, I would think. <laughs> Uh, there's no doubt about that. And in terms of those relationships and those suppliers, how, how have those changed over the years? Have you seen this evolution, uh, particularly, I suppose, the, the, the studios? You know, has the nature of the relationship changed as they've changed? Danny, I think it's changing, it's starting to change quite a lot now. I mean, if I look back over the past few years, and that's largely because 
most of the studios now um, are starting to develop their own, you know, SVOD services. And so for, for many years, I think the relationship was pretty much the same. I mean, you bought your, your content from them. You know, they were, we were a big client of theirs. We needed them. It, it, it kind of worked both ways. But when things started to really change was when suddenly they started saying, well, actually, you know, we'd like to hold some of this back because, you know, we've got our own plans. And, you know, we'd say, but those plans involve maybe competing with us. That's not <laughs> And that's where it starts to get a bit tricky because none of them have actually got going yet in Africa for obvious reasons. It's not, you know, as I said, it's not that easy. But at the same time, they've got some, you know, I always used to joke and say they've got some 20-year-old business development strategist in LA who's never been there, but he's read an endless report somewhere. He's telling them what they have to do. And the poor salespeople are, you know, are caught between a rock and a hard place because they have us, who, you know, who are then refusing to buy or saying, okay, we'll buy it, but we're going to pay you a lot less because you can't sell it to us and then take it away from us, you know, in the same breath. So I think it's changing quite a lot. And um, as I said, I'm, I'm not involved anymore, but certainly just talking to people doing it now and what was happening and towards the end of my time there, it was very clear that that relationship is going to go through quite a major change. I'm not sure what you think, but... Uh, uh, certainly with the studios. I mean, the, I think the, you're going to see a lot more buying, I think, from uh, independence and, you know, that sort of thing. But with the major studios have got their own OTT ambitions, I think that's going to change dramatically. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is interesting. And um, I suppose as somebody who's working with primarily independent content owners myself, I do see that as an opportunity for the clients that I work with. I mean, you mentioned the studios in particular, but I guess in South Africa and Africa in general, there's been such a diversity of influence from other parts of the world that although US content, I'm sure, has has always been highly demanded and highly regarded, I'm guessing that content from other parts of the world has also always been of interest, whether that's for sort of post-colonial reasons or language reasons or religious and ethnic communities. I mean, it's, it's such a diverse place. Um, yeah, there's no doubt about that. You know, especially uh, especially telenovelas and you know Indian content's very very popular here, and um, some of the South American stuff. One of the things that I did when I was still at Mnet was we launched the first African movie channels with African movies, and we at the time we actually thought this will never work, but it'll get us you know get us some goodwill with the regulator. And we were absolutely astounded at how well these channels have done, and they've become now top performing channels. And I always used to joke because I used to, you know, let the studios know that the price of one Hollywood mega hit, I could put a whole channel together of, uh, you know, of local African movies and it would outperform the Hollywood stuff. Uh, and, and that's kind of in a way of how it's going here as well. So you're seeing a mix of a- African content and, and, that, and that industry is really growing. But there's lots of other forms of content that work very well here as well. So it's not just about uh, the U.S. staple, U.S. diet and stuff. And that's good for you because you, you still have a diversity of supply and, and, a, and you're not reliant on one source of supply. So that's really important. Over the period of time, who, what was your toughest negotiation? It's difficult to say because you would have times where it would go well or not so well. They, they're, they're all pretty tough. And how do they compare? How do those negotiations compare with the sports rights deals that you did? Oh, they're much harder. Sports rights deals are easy. I mean, I, I don't want to be flippant about it because, and even even easier now because it's, you just put some money on the table, uh, and it's you know, most of them these days are an auction. But even back then, it was simply a question of how much can you pay, 
and no one really cared what rights you had. You could have whatever, you know, we used to say we, you'll have smoke signals, you know, we'll have everything. The entertainment side is much more complicated, especially now with the way those rights are carved up. It's very, very complex. And then just looking forward in the next 10 years, how do you see the evolution of broadcast in uh, South Africa and Africa? Do you think that you'll see more presence of the stream and services, but not quite to the same degree of penetration that you're seeing in other places for the reasons that you talked about, that DSTV will continue to grow? Do things look similar or do they look radically different over the next decade or so? I think they look similar. I, I think it'll, it'll, it'll follow what happens in the rest of the world. It's just a question of how long it will take, which is what nobody really knows. But I think you, what you're going to see in Africa, I think, is you're going to see, I think the, the, the production industry will really do well uh, because there's going to be a real, I mean, you just look on our side, the amount of money that we're diverting into a local content, it's massive. And that's just us. And so everybody else is going to, so the production industry here will do extremely well. Uh, and we're seeing such interest now in international co-productions. People want you to come and actually do stuff here uh, with us. But together with that, you're going to have, I think, as everywhere else, you're going to have a lot of OTT players, I think, come here. All the big players will come here. And they all try it here. Some will work, some won't work. It'll definitely follow what happens in the rest of the world. It's just you just don't know how long it'll take. And as I said, the future is easy to predict. It's just knowing, it's just knowing when. <laughs> Okay, well, this is usually the part of uh, the, the podcast where I ask my guests for their lockdown film, book, music, and box set. And music could be an album, a playlist. We're very loose on music uh, because of the changing technology. What, what, uh, what would you choose from that list? Yeah, it was quite an interesting exercise, Danny. So um, I started with the film. And I was looking back at, you know, trying to see, obviously, we haven't been to the theater for, for a long, long time. But it was a quite interesting because a film that I watched quite soon after lockdown started here in South Africa. And it's one of the few films that I've actually seen or watched twice, quite close to in proximity, and which I absolutely loved. That was Jojo Rabbit. So that would definitely be my, my lockdown film. Uh, as far as a, a box set is concerned, and uh, you might laugh here, but... Uh, Maybe it's my factual background, but um, there's, there's been a lot. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure and, and many of the people who've been on your, on your series have mentioned a lot of those shows. But the one that my partner and I really enjoyed, our sort of lockdown box set was Come Dine With Me, but the South African version, <laughs> which the South African version is very fun if you're South African because uh, it's culturally diverse. That people drink way too much, and it's, it's just, uh, we just found it hilarious. And we basically went back and watched all the prior seasons, and it was a, we thought it was very, very funny. And then um, as far as the book is concerned, yeah, much of my reading has been, it's quite local, so it may not be of very much interest or relevance, but the book, in fact, I'm, I'm nearly finished. I'm busy with it at the moment. That's really that I keep quoting here locally. It's quite an interesting book. It's called Bacardi. And the long fight for Cuba. And, and, and why it's interesting is that it's a business book in a sense because it's about Bacardi and, 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 and rum, but it, it's intertwined or interwoven with the history of Cuba. And that for a South African is very interesting because we have this love affair, or our government has this total love affair with Cuba. And, you know, we import Cuban doctors and Cuban engineers, and we absolutely are, you know, Cuba can do no wrong in the eyes of many in this country. And it was absolutely fascinating. It has been fascinating reading the book, not only from the from from the you know the business history. It's written in a very easy style, but just to also see the parallels with you know the Cuban Revolution and much of what's happened here, 
and uh, which is a bit scary actually, <laughs> because a lot of it seems to be happening here as well. But it's, fasc- it's been a fascinating read for me. And then uh, the the music was, was difficult for me because I'm a bit of a dilettante when it comes to music. And so if I think about lockdown in particular, I think the music, the thing that for me was interesting about lockdown was I became a bit of an expert at compiling playlists, nothing else. I put together all these playlists and we'd let them play all day. And so what I thought was the one artist that I've listened to a lot more in lockdown that I hadn't really listened to for a long time and got, kind of got into all my playlists was Bob Dylan. So anything to do with Bob Dylan, I, you know, and I listen to him a lot more and that would really be my music choice. Fantastic. If that's yeah, no, very good. Well, it's a very eclectic choice. That's fantastic. Well, Glenn Marks, thank you so much for uh, for being on the podcast and sharing you. uh, sharing your thoughts and uh, experiences. It's been fascinating, and I think great for people to get a perspective on things in probably very different from uh, the sort of experiences that uh, that a lot of us face. The idea that electricity doesn't just happen is <laughs> is, is definitely one to think about. So uh, so that's fantastic. Absolutely encourage your listeners to come and visit South Africa, especially Hermanus. I can I can vouch for that. Uh, absolutely. Well, thanks very much, and um, looking forward to uh, speaking more in the future. That'll be great. Thank you, Danny. Cheers. 